The title of our message today is A Star is Born. A Star is Born. And I want you to take your copy of the Word this morning, and you can turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Verses 1 through 12. So we live in a day where it pays to be a star. Celebrities who achieve what we would call star status are almost worshipped in our culture. In fact, as I thought about this, I thought about one celebrity in particular named Beyonce who actually has a cult following and she has fans who actually worship her in blasphemous worship. They've even gone as far to make a Beyonce mass, almost like a church dedicated to her, in order to offer this false earthly star worship. Our culture is obsessed with celebrity. Some of you may be too young to remember a show that was on TV when I was a kid, and that show was called Star Search. And how many of you probably remember the show Star Search? Um, and, and as I thought about that, I was thinking, well, I wonder how many shows like that exist today. Back during that time, uh, when you would Google something, you'd probably get a sound that sounded like a fax machine that went, American online, right? I'm that old. I was, that made me think about how old I was when I thought about that. I'm like, let me contact my old friend Google, and I want to find out just how many of these type of shows exist today. And there was a time where you'd have to ask Jeeves, and Jeeves wouldn't know what you were talking about half the time anyway, right? But as I did this search, I found that there are 70 of these type of find a star, find the new star type of shows that are on TV across the world. I think it's safe to say that our culture is looking for a star and is totally obsessed with celebrity. Here in the U.S., we are not in a monarchy. We don't have a king and a queen. We don't have a system of government that's established where we where we put kings and queens into place. But our TV, sports, internet, movie stars, sports stars are somewhat kings and queens in our culture. We actually look at them almost to that extent. Why? They drive fancy cars and they live in big houses and they take extravagant trips and they have all of the luxuries of the world that would make us say that that person is a king or a queen. And in some instances, we may even call these stars and celebrities a king or a queen when we talk about them in passing. But in spite of all of their extravagant things, all of the world's trinkets, they are still mere men and women, mortals, who suffer from the same sin condition, falling condition as you and I. But this morning in Matthew's gospel, Matthew reveals to us a star who is like no other. A star who has never had 
a moral failure, a star who is exponentially richer than any star that you have ever seen in your entire life. This star is much more than a star. Even the word superstar is not enough to describe this star. That's because he's more than a star. He's a king. He is the king. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He didn't need to be elected as king or earn his status. He was born a king and his name is Jesus. So if you have your copy of the Bible, we're going to look now at verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you because your word is truth, Lord God. Thank you that you have left us with witness of who you are, Lord God. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who did come, who did die in our place, Lord God, that we may have fellowship with you, Lord Jesus. Father, we invite you this morning to speak to us, Lord God. Father, take this meager preparation, take this wood that I put before you, Lord God, and I pray that you would set it on fire for your glory, Lord Jesus. Father, would you speak to your people today the message that we all need to hear, Lord God? This is all in your precious son, Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we see in this narrative this morning is that the wise men were fully committed to finding the king of the Jews, a.k.a. Jesus, when we look at verse 1 and 2. So who are these wise men or magi? Now, if you're like me, you enjoy music. And a lot of times we look to music for something a little bit more than we probably should look to music for. Um, Now, there are hymns and things, and I think I've even heard that 
Some person way back sometimes said something like, if you looked at all the hymns and that you could almost put the whole Bible together based on the hymns and things like that. But just normal songs sometimes aren't the best place for us to find our theology. And why do I say this? Because we sing a song during Christmas time that is called These Three Kings. And it says, these three kings from Orient are bringing gifts we traverse from afar. It's a cute song, but it's biblically inaccurate. Why do I say this? Because there was not necessarily three kings. And in fact, they weren't even kings. But it's, you wouldn't be able to write a good song using what they actually were. So the song's okay. Don't hear me this morning saying don't sing Three Kings anymore. Don't nobody get upset. Sing it to your heart's content. I have no problem with it. But it's not the best place for you to get your Bible knowledge. Now, we believe that there were three kings because there were three gifts, right? And so that's where that comes from. Actually, uh, at one time, it used to be that they would say that there were 12 kings that came and brought gifts to Jesus. The truth is, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how many there were. But we can ascertain from these men coming from the East and the culture that's associated with that and some other things, that this may have actually been a large entourage of men that were coming to Jerusalem. So we don't know if it was three, we don't know if it was 53 or 103. But this may very well have been a caravan of men or wise men that were traveling to the east in order to, from the east to the west. The west side is the best side. That's what we say back home, but I digress. Um, so they were headed to the west. Um, and this may have been an entourage with all of the pomp and propriety and all of that that comes with men who have some kind of status or stature. Because when we think about even the word magi, or a better word, magus, which is also a part of that, magus means great. And so we know that these were great men. These were men who had some kind of status. They may have come from some sort of royal or priestly lineage, but they were not kings in the sense that we would call people kings. Another thing about these magi or wise men is that they were pagan men. They were coming from Persia and Persia was a pagan nation. Actually, the word magi is where we get our word magician. So these men were more likely magicians, astrologers, and astronomers and things of that sort. So these men are traveling from the east to the West to find a king and they're pagans. They're looking for the king of the Jews and these are pagan men. That's very interesting. Well, these wise men would have been men who studied the stars. These were men who would have sat out, looked out into the night and chart the stars on their charts and they would have had great libraries as well there in Persia. And so while they were out looking at these stars, they realized that there was a brand new star that was in the sky that they had never seen on any of their charts. And so being wise men, curious men, they wanted to investigate what this star was and what this star 
meant. As I said before, these would have been men who had great libraries at their disposal because the Persians had actually, if you know a little bit of your Old Testament, at towards the end of the Old Testament, those people conquered the people of Israel. And so because they conquered them, they would have had the writings of Moses most likely inside of these libraries. And so as they were trying to ascertain where this star is from and what this star means, I believe they would have came across Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So the Magi read this and I'm sure they were saying to themselves, this has got to be it. This must be what the star means. And so logically, as they thought about that, they would say, well, If these are the writings of Moses, let us find the people of Moses, the people of Judah. And where better to find those people than in their capital city, which was Jerusalem. And so these wise men decided to make a journey in order to investigate this. Surely they would think that the people of Israel would have the answer to the question that they were asking. So here they go. They are traveling their hundreds of miles over their long distance, making their great journey to investigate who is this king. Something else we see in this text is the fact that God will use any means necessary to help us find him. God will use any means necessary to help us find him. If you look at 2 Peter verses 3, verse, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is zealous for his own glory, and God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all men to know him. So who and what do we see God using in this story to draw men to himself. If we think about the story of the shepherds, we remember that angels came and spoke to them to give them the message of the king who was born, of Jesus Christ. So God uses supernatural means sometimes in order to get us to Jesus. He used the Magi's pagan practices in order to draw men to himself. And he does the same things today. I remember myself when I was living a life of sin and I didn't know the Lord. I remember sitting on my couch one morning, not in the best place, and somebody came on TV that I would never endorse. I'm going to say his name, and I don't have a problem with that. His name was Creflo Dollar. He's one of those money preachers that you see on TBS and all of that. And But as they say, a broke clock is right twice a day, right? And so as I sat there in the midst of my sin, something in his message spoke to me. As I was listening to what he said, something inside of me knew something wasn't right 
on the inside of me. Even though his doctrine was not the most perfect, even though he didn't have uh, the, the, the theological background that we would have in our community, God still used that man to speak a word to me at the right time. And as we think about these magi, these were pagan men. These were men who did not possess the truth. But God used their searching, their inquiring hearts in order to draw them to himself. He also used the star to show us that Jesus is the only way to God. How so? Because the star led them directly to Jesus. As we know from reading our Bibles that there is only one way to God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And so these wise men on their search for knowledge, on their quest for understanding, God even used that and used that star in the sky to draw them to the very son of God. And I find that quite interesting. What else does he use? He uses you and me. God uses me and you. He wants us to be like that star of Bethlehem, shining in the darkness, guiding lost men and women to Jesus. We're not talking about celebrity. We're talking about being a light in a dark world, right? God wants us to be like that star that directs men and women. They may be looking at their horoscopes. They may be looking at all of these other pagan things, tarot cards and all of this stuff that God warns us against. See, we're not to look as the people of God. We're not to look to the stars or to horoscopes or to tarot cards to find God. We are to look to his word and to his son. And God uses all means in order to draw men and women to himself. Somewhere in the Bible, it even says that if we don't go, if we don't tell the people about Jesus, even the rocks will cry out. Here's another thing that we see in this text is that the people furthest from the truth were the ones who were most passionate about seeking it. And those who had it were indifferent to it. I'm going to say that again. The people furthest from the truth were the ones most passionate about seeking it. And those who had it were indifferent to it. We, are, we observed two different groups or types of people in this narrative. We have the religious leaders who knew the truth but weren't acting on it. They knew the prophecy, but they wouldn't go five miles to confirm it. Let's look at verses four and six again. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Don't you find it interesting that when Herod inquired of them, they didn't have to say, Herod, well, I don't know. I'll get back to you later. Let me go research this out a little bit 
and then I'll come back and tell you where the king is going to be born. As soon as he asked them, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew the prophecy. They knew the truth. But they weren't willing to do anything about it. That's a sad indictment. And how are we like that sometimes? We know the truth, but we're not willing to do anything about it. And then on the other hand, we have the pagan wise men who, based on a hunch, based on looking at the stars and searching through their libraries and reading a scripture, they had some belief in their heart. How would I say that they had belief in their heart? Because they didn't just go and search and take this long journey. They actually brought gifts in anticipation of what they were going to find. Isn't that amazing? These were men who did not possess the truth, but they were willing to travel hundreds of miles to find the truth. So which one are you? Has your knowledge of God made you complacent or proud or indifferent like the religious leaders? Or are you like the wise men who were willing to put some feet to their faith? This makes sense when you think about it. Who was Jesus most frustrated with during his earthly ministry? The religious leaders. One of Jesus's greatest rebukes of the religious leaders is found in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's good to know the word. It's good to strive for theological fidelity. But it's all worthless if all of that knowledge doesn't lead us to Jesus. The whole goal of coming here on Sundays and reading this Bible and doing our good works is not so that we're accepted by God. We're already accepted when we receive Jesus Christ. God is looking at you with nothing but love and acceptance. The purpose of doing all of this is so that we can, again, be the star and go be the bright light to a lost world and tell them about who this king is who has done everything for us. Here's something else we see in this text. Herod understood that only one king could sit on the throne, either him or Jesus. And conversely, you should know that only one king can sit on the throne of your heart, either you or Jesus. So who is Herod? Let's talk about Herod a little bit. Historically, there were many Herods because the name Herod means king. The Herod we're talking about here is Herod the Great, which means great king. And much like the stars or celebrities I mentioned earlier, Herod was full of himself, thinking he was somebody, when in reality he was nobody, because Jesus is the true star of the show. Listen to what theologian Arnold Fruchtenbaum has to say about Herod the Great. Hopefully this will give you a little bit of understanding as to why verse 3 of our text says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled 
and all Jerusalem with him. He was a very clever, ruthless ruler who was constantly on watch for insurrection and intrigue. His life reads like the worst kind of soap opera, of villainy and murder. He became so evil that he killed three or possibly four of his sons and his favorite wife, Mary Amney. He had ten wives and offspring who were constantly conspiring against each other. He was so paranoid that he built incredibly elaborate fortresses in a planned escape route in a line towards Egypt, which included Masada. He was an Idumean, a race forcibly converted to Judaism earlier in history. And while he practiced Judaism, he was not ethnically Jewish. This is one reason the Jewish people hated him. Herod was no joke. Herod was truly an evil man. Herod the Great is the definition of an evil king. Even the Roman Emperor Augustus once said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Now that's something to say about somebody. Herod saw his own family as a threat to his power or celebrity, but he saw Jesus as the ultimate threat. Let's look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod lying because he's evil and Herod's lying right here. He, he don't want to worship Jesus. He wants to kill Jesus. Because as I said earlier, he realized that there could only be one king. And if Jesus is king, then Herod couldn't be king. And if Herod was willing to kill his own family, if he thought that they were threatening his power and authority, how much more would he want to kill this child? And if we're not going to cover this part of the story, but you know that later on in this narrative that an edict or decree was given by him to kill the children that were two years and under, because that's how paranoid Herod was. Now I'm going to say something that many of us would probably never want to admit to, but the truth is we all have a little bit of Herod in us. Of course you aren't out seeking to kill Jesus, as Herod was, but glimpses of Herod's character are revealed in us when we believe we can share the throne of our hearts with Jesus. Jesus refuses to sit on your lap. In what ways are you looking more like Herod than like Jesus? We look more like Herod when Jesus is only welcome into certain areas of our lives. Those are the times when we look more like Herod, when we say, God, you can have this, but you can't have that. God, you, you can't have my possessions. You can have my time, but you can't have my money. Or you can have my money, but you can't have my time. That's us sitting on the throne. That's not our place. When we come to Jesus, all of us belongs to Jesus. Everything we have, everything we are, and everything we do should be dedicated to Jesus. How else do we look like Herod? We look like Herod when we believe we can do a better job managing our lives than God can. 
How does that play out? Well, you know, um, this looks good over here. I I think I'm going to take this job. I didn't ask you about it, God, because it's just what I want. Um, so th- that's just what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not going to seek your advice about that. I don't need to pray to you about that. Oh, yeah, I want to I want to marry him or I want to marry her. Um, and he looks so good or she looks so good. And that's just that's that's who I want. I don't I don't care what you think about it, God, because I'm going to do what I want to do. You, you can't sit on the throne today. I'm, I'm sitting on the throne today. See, I know how to manage this better than you do, God. These are a few, a couple ways where we can end up looking like Herod in our character. As wicked as Herod was, he did get a couple of things right. He realized that as long as Jesus is king, he could not be king. As long as Jesus was and is the star of the show, he could only be an understudy. You know it's true. Think about your job, maybe. Has there ever been a time on your job where multiple people thought they were your boss? That's always a mess, ain't it? And eventually, they're going to end up fighting with each other because there can only be one boss. One is going to try to rule out the other or get rid of the other. Same thing with our hearts. If we keep wrestling and battling inside, kicking Jesus off of the throne and saying, no, today I'm the boss. Eventually, somebody's going to have to go. And I hope that it would be us. I hope that it would be you and not Jesus, that we would let Jesus do what Jesus does and sit on that throne of our heart. But what often happens is that we try to work out a co-leadership deal with Jesus. And we all know that don't work either because there's only one boss once again. And as I said, Jesus is not going to sit on your lap, but you can sit on his shoulders. Let's look at verse 8 through 12. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Remember I said previously that Herod did get a couple of things right. Here's the other thing. In verse 8, we see that though Herod was lying about his intentions, he does say something worthy of recognition. He says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. This is what we should be doing. This is what we all should be doing. It should be our mission to seek diligently after Jesus. And once we have found him, the next thing we should do is to go and tell somebody about him. And then we live the rest of our lives in worship to him. 
And just as the wise men brought their gifts to Jesus, Jesus wants us to bring our gifts, talents, treasures, and all to him as well. So in closing, think about this if you don't remember anything else, is that Jesus has to be the one sitting on the throne of our hearts. Jesus is the true star. He is the one worthy of our worship. He is the one worthy of all praise. He is the one who has the right to tell us where to go, what to do, and when to do it, and how to do it. That's not our place. We are terrible. We are terrible at managing our own lives. I know that I am. Anytime that I try to step in that place that belongs to Jesus, I wreck everything. But I have never felt bad or went wrong when I said, Jesus, whatever you want to do, do whatever you want. When I get out the way and I let God be God and I let Jesus do what Jesus does, things typically go much better for me. And they'll go much better for all of us when we stop holding back parts of ourselves, when we stop reserving these pieces of ourselves, thinking that we are better managers of our lives than God is. When he tells us to do something a certain way, it's for a reason. It's for our good. To those of you here today who are not believers, I want to say to you that Jesus Christ is king. I want to say to you that today, if you would repent, and that means to turn from your sins and put your trust in this king who is risen, the son of God, that you shall be saved. This does not have to be some complicated thing. The gospel is a very simple message. Man is a mess. Man is sinner. When Adam and Eve did what they did, sin entered the world, and that sin was passed along to every man, boy, and girl. And there's only one way, one path to get your life out of that wreck and out of that mess. And that path is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because when we trust in him, the wrath of God against all sin and unrighteousness is satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And at that point, when you receive Jesus in faith, no longer do you stand under that wrath. But now when Jesus, when God looks down at you, he sees the blood of his son. He sees Jesus Christ standing in your place. And oh, how he loves his son and oh, how he will love you. A star is born, and his name is Jesus.